Well, we're doing things a bit backwards this Easter. Um, we are, uh, today's Palm Sunday, as you know, and we're not in the triumphal entry just yet. Um, so we are actually dealing with the triumphal entry next week in Easter. And this week, we're just going to take our dear sweet time looking at these blind men and Jesus' interactions with these blind men. We're really coming to the final stage of Jesus' ascension to the holy city. Next stop is Jerusalem. And that's where we're going to see the greatest works of redemption leading up, culminating into the cross and the empty tomb. Before we get to Jerusalem, before this, this you know, chapter and chapter and chapter of Jesus' work and Jesus' salvation and what Jesus is going to do at Golgotha, Matthew has one more lesson on greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Over the last several chapters, Matthew has recorded the comings and goings of several who approached Jesus for various reasons and with various requests. Not everyone, though, is uh, seen as getting what they asked for. The Pharisees came to ask for a sign, but left with no such sign. And they probably left with a wounded pride. The rich young man came to Jesus asking how he could win eternal life, how he could purchase it, buy it with his good works, and left sad because he could not abandon his beloved possessions. James and John's mother come asking for a guarantee that her sons will be superior to the rest in the coming kingdom, and yet she leaves without any confirmation that her request would be granted. It is interesting that the only people who get what they want... The only people who get what they ask for in Matthew's gospel tend to be the people we'd least expect. Isn't that right? If you think about it slow, think about it carefully. Blind men, Canaanite women, children. I just I, I want to bask in the humility, humility of this because we, we read it and we don't quite get it. I just want to confess to you publicly, I've had yet another week of pride-filled instances where I am competing for the top spot. I've had yet a, another week of instance after instance after instance where I've been more concerned about people having more power than me. I've watched the news headlines wondering in this big wrestling match for who's going to be superior to another and wondering if I'm going to be one on top. Has anyone else had that struggle this week? I hope I'm not the only one here that's done that. But I think it's refreshing to realize that it's not the powerful, it's not the rich, it's not the religious that get what they ask from Jesus. It's blind people, children, prostitutes, tax collectors, Canaanite women. Those are the people who get what they ask for from Jesus. No one else does. They get turned away. 
So I just, I, as, as I'm looking at this and I'm thinking about this, this isn't just some you know, social gospel where we're talking about all the poor getting what they want and overthrowing the rich. No, we're talking about a great reversal that is happening right here before our very eyes in which those who are humble, those who are broken, those who acknowledge their brokenness and acknowledge Jesus' power, those are the people who receive mercy. While those who don't think they need it leave empty-handed. How is it that people like the religiously elite Pharisees, the seemingly blessed, wealthy young man, leave completely impoverished of grace? While the poor, broken, marginalized people like the blind men and the foreign Canaanite woman receive mercy from Jesus, the king. If you read your Bibles from beginning to end, there is a great reversal coming. And it's coming, not, it's, and it's not a political reversal necessarily. It's not an economic reversal necessarily. It is a reversal in which the humble are exalted by God and the self-exalting are humiliated. You see it over and over. You see it, all, you see it in, uh, specifically in 1 Samuel chapter 2 where Hannah praises God that the poor are lifted to the prince's seats and the princes are knocked down, that the, the once full now walk away hungry and empty and those who are hungry are filled with the bread of God. And all this to show that God is sovereign. The self-entitled, the self-exalting, the powerful, the arrogant, the self-esteemed wise are humbled or humiliated. While the weak, the needy, the poor, the lowly, the humble, the desperate needy at that are exalted. It's interesting, Jesus himself articulates this great reversal that is coming in John 9.39 to, of all people, a formally a formerly blind man. Here's what he says about this great reversal. For judgment I have come into this world. We don't, we don't bask in that enough. Jesus did come for judgment. He came for salvation, but he also came for judgment. For judgment I have come into this world. What judgment is that? That those who do not see may see. And that those who see may become blind. And we see this happening in Matthew's gospel as the seeing Pharisees are declared to be blind guides in Matthew 15, and the blind men of Jericho are given their sight as they follow the Messiah. It was the same Jesus who interacted with both the Pharisees and the blind men, but only one of them receives redemptive sight. So that being so, I think it's important for us to ask as we're reading this, who do we align with the most? Do we align with the seeing Pharisees who ultimately become blind? Or do we align with the blind men who ultimately see? The question is important, and as will be demonstrated in this passage, only those who approach Jesus knowing their need for mercy and confessing his exclusive power to give it are the ones that receive that which they seek. My friends, I just gotta I just gotta confess something else to you. I preached at Omni last week, and man, there were amens from you know like five minutes in. Let me just let me just say this one more time, okay? Okay, we need practice at this. 
Only those who approach Jesus knowing their need and only those who confess his exclusive power to meet that need are the ones that receive the mercy they seek. Thank you. Thank you. A little late, but that's okay. (laughs) My friends, this text is for you. This isn't for those prideful people out there. This is for the braggarts that are sitting in our own pews. This is for the haughty man standing in the pulpit. This is for the self-exalted one who serves on the elder council. This is for the self-entitled deacon. This is for the Sunday school the Sunday school teacher who has served this week and put in their time and now they're good and better than everybody else. This is for you. We are the prideful people that need to hear the message over and over and over again that it's not the competent who receive mercy. It's the needy. Are we then needy? And as beggars, not braggarts who are well suited to receive mercy. Now, every detail in Matthew's gospel is bent on teaching us something about Jesus' kingship. Every detail. Matthew wants all to understand that Jesus is the long-awaited king who is prophesied in scripture. He was the king who has come to save his people from their sin and restore the world back to God, essentially creating a new Edenic-like paradise so that they can live and walk and breathe in the grace of God and his very presence. That said, where things happen in Matthew's gospel and to whom they happen are particularly important details. Pay attention to the city names. Pay attention to who it is that receives such mercy because Matthew's using that to display something magnificent, something amazing in this biblical storyline. So let's just listen to the setting and the key characters very carefully here. Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 30. And as they went out of Jericho, now, The only thing you might know about Jericho is Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, right? You've sang that song. Um, There's a little bit more to it than that, and we'll get to that. And then we get the characters, and the great crowd followed him. So you get the great crowd, and then you get Jesus. And then finally you get, behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. Now, Jericho has its own infamous repetition. We know it as the first city destroyed in Joshua's campaign. It was a very wicked city that had tall walls. And we know the story. Joshua Joshua marched around with the ark, and then the walls fell down, and then they destroyed it. But it was also a city that was attached to a curse. Joshua made the curse that whoever rebuilt Jericho would be cursed himself because it was a cursed city. It wasn't meant to be built again. And so when you think of Jericho from a biblical perspective, you're looking at this place that was the first to receive God's wrath and judgment in the conquest. It was also looked at as this was the place that the burn marks were to remain on the stones. It was meant to be left ruined. And then if you are a little more nerdy about your geography of the Bible, you know that Jericho's in the Negev which is the desert regions. And for those of you that have been in a desert or maybe you've been to this desert, it's hot, it's nasty. It's got no appeal to anyone to live there. So a cursed city in a wilderness place. And as we look at this, this background, we're thinking this is a strange place for Jesus to do a key redemptive work, isn't it? 
Nothing but sand and dirt and rocks, cursed city and beggars. Or is it really all that strange? Should we be expecting Jesus to do this kind of work? What does Jesus healing two blind men in the desert, in the wilderness, teach us about Jesus' identity as the promised king? If you turn to Isaiah 35, you will find that this wilderness-based redemption is not as unforeseen as we might initially think. Isaiah prophesies amazing things such as this. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It's a type of flower. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And then comes the promise. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Where at? In the desert. We're at in the dry places. We're at in the places nobody wants to live. You can also go to Isaiah 42, in which God's servant is sent to open the eyes that are blind, with the result that the desert and its cities will lift up its voices in singing, in praise. Thus, from a biblical perspective, redemptive work happening in desert places like Jericho to blind beggars like these men is an amazing work of redemption that was promised long, long ago. Who better to receive the first taste of restorative wine than blind men in the desert? Again, we're thinking this is the last place any of us would ever want to go. Hot, dry, dirty beggars, curse, nasty. I just, I just want to glorify in this text just a little bit. I just want to praise God in this text. If I'm a king, if I'm the czar of Russia, right? I'm not going here. Give me a one-way ticket to Jerusalem. Better yet, give me a one-way ticket to Rome. If I'm the president of the United States, this is the kind of place we drive by if we drive through it at all, because there's better ways to get around. But my king came to the desert. My king came to the broken, dry places of the world. My king doesn't set up shop in palaces with rich dignitaries. My king begins his restorative work and gives the first taste of redemptive wine to beggars in deserts. Have you ever thought about that? Of all the kings that have ever walked the earth, all of them have a procession and they are very intentional about where they go because where they go displays who they are. This king sets up shop in the desert. And long before any Pharisee like Nicodemus sees who Jesus is, Jesus first gives the glass of wine, the sweet, redemptive wine that has been brewing for a long, long time. And he looks at blind beggars and says, I know you're the thirstiest, so come and drink. That amazes me about our Lord. He goes to broken places. And he works for broken people, not the people that have it all together. Not the people who live in big, important places. 
He starts off with broken people in broken places. And that's where our Savior goes. So that's the setting. But then we see these two blind men. And I think it's helpful for us to understand what it meant to be blind in the ancient world. Most of you probably have not met a blind person. If you have, it's not attached with the same connotations as it was then. But in the ancient world, to be blind was, to be, was always seen as this state of helplessness, kind of childlike humiliation. They had to be led out by the hand to a place and sat down, and then they had to beg. That was their career. To be blind, you're not going to be a carpenter. To be blind, you're not going to be a king. You're not going to be a prince. You're not going to be anyone of any kind of value in that society. Instead, you're going to be led out by the hand like a child and sat by the roadside where you're going to beg just for a few penance. A few, a, few piece, a few coins, maybe a few scraps of bread. Sometimes it was viewed as the direct judgment of God. I mean, we see this in John chapter 9, verse 2, when the disciples encounter the blind men and they ask, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? So to be a blind man, you're, you're, you're receiving all these kind of viewpoints from people, people scoffing at you, laughing at you, people walking right by you like you don't matter, people tripping on you and not apologizing. They're, they're looking at you as someone who has received the judgment of God. And with that in mind, I think we keep that background in our forefront as we see that it is for such people that Jesus' heart is moved to compassion. His heart is moved by blind people like this. Here's the point of this brief background. I've already said it multiple times. While everyone is avoiding the broken people, Jesus sets a table for tax collectors and sinners. While everybody is covering their ears to sinners and to the blind and to the poor and to the broken, Jesus hears the cries of blind men. He sees the tears of Canaanite women and willingly opens his arms to anxiously awaiting children. All through his ministry, Jesus turns the messianic expectations upside down. He's the same Messiah that's always been prophesied, but he just does things in ways that they did not expect. Salvation's coming to the earth, but not through a sword, it's through a cross. Salvation is coming and people are going to be coming in from the nations, birds of the nations coming in to make their nest in the tree of the kingdom. That's the image that's used in Ezekiel. But it's not because his king subdues them through war. Because he welcomes them in grace. My friends, the reason we need to read our Bibles is not because it's some spiritual discipline that we need to check mark off the list. It's because people like you and I need our expectations constantly corrected. God forbid we set up expectations about Jesus that are not biblically accurate. Here's the problem that we see in our churches throughout history. We throughout church history, have so often created a Jesus that isn't real. We've created an unbiblical Jesus. Let me just ask you, when you think of Jesus and the Jesus you follow, who does he hang out with? Who makes up his list of followers? What do they look like? What do they smell like? It might not be people you typically hang out with. 
My friends, does the Jesus you follow, does he move to a broken society and call them to follow him? Does he move to fishermen, blind vagabonds, prostitutes, Canaanites? Or is he the Jesus that wears a business suit and tie and is regal with his nose in the air and walks on by? Those kind of people. Now, I don't think any of us would be so bold to say, yeah, I've never really thought of Jesus that way, but sometimes we act like it, don't we? And the sad part is people are looking at us as the images of Christ, and we've just imaged a Jesus that doesn't have time for such people. We constantly have to come back. It's an awkward question, but it's a really, really important question. Who your Jesus looks like in your mind's eye will tell you whether you have Matthew's Jesus, the merciful son of David who hangs out with prostitutes, people who might have STDs, people who are blind and lepers that have skin diseases and the things that make your nose crinkle and make you want to whisper in the hallway. Jesus hangs out with those people. And if you know that Jesus then you have Matthew's Jesus. But if your Jesus is someone different, you might just have a pretend Jesus of your own invention. That's the dangerous side of it. Man, at Omni, they they said amen even when they were convicted. Um, In verse 30, Matthew tells us that when the blind heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Their short and simple cry is packed with profound truth. In fact, their cries reveal that these blind men actually see better than most of the religious elite of their day. They see better than most anyone around them. So what exactly do they see? Well, first, these blind men see themselves correctly. They see themselves clearly. Notice that no one has to convince them that they're blind. No one has to convince them that they're beggars. No one, has, no, no one says anything, anything to them, in fact. They see themselves clearly. Notice also how they know what they need. Don't say, oh, the king's coming. Let's see if he'll throw us a, a few uh, spare coins from the money pouch. No, they know they don't need money. They know they don't need his medicine. They know they don't need anything external. They need mercy. That's what they need. So they have correctly diagnosed themselves. They're blind. They're beggars. He's the king. They need mercy. They don't come like the rich young man and and say, Jesus, what must we do to regain our sight? Do they? What must we do so that we can see again? They don't say anything like that. They know that they can't do anything. They're helpless, desperate, needy. Their their position as they see it is in this desperate childlike neediness. Pharisees might think they have no need from him. The rich young man thinks he needs nothing else but his morality. The disciples are still figuring out just how much they need Jesus. But these blind men, unlike others, have the humility to act out of their need for Jesus. How does this compare with your view of yourself? 
Sure, not many of us here would be so bold to say that we don't need Jesus, right? We all kind of roll our eyes when the preacher gets there and say, no, I know I need Jesus. But do you overestimate your own spiritual competency? You see, there's a difference between living in a philosophical ascent. Yes, 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 I need Jesus. And living in a desperate neediness for him. In the former, where you say, yes, 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 I need Jesus. You need Jesus like you need a new haircut. Thank you, kids. (laughs) I'm glad somebody laughed about that. You need Jesus like you need to try the new Mexican restaurant. But in the latter, you need Jesus like you need air. You see the difference? I need to get my taxes done. I need air. There's a big difference between those. Right? So my question is, how do you need Jesus? Yes, 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 I need Jesus. Doesn't do anything. That's not neediness. Neediness is coming going, I need Jesus. I desperately need him. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I'll wreck my life. I'm tired. I'm weary. My energy doesn't go as far as his does. I'm unrighteous. I'm the tax collector in the temple beating my chest with my eyes down because my righteousness does nothing. And if I'm to have God, I must have Jesus. That's the kind of neediness that we're called to. And our churches are filled with people who need Jesus, like they need the new purse that's out, or they need the nice new accessory, or they need the new iPhone. But we don't have churches that are filled with people that desperately, desperately need Jesus and live in that. My friends, the greatest disciple in all the kingdom of God is never higher than a blind beggar. You can never, if you want to promote, you promote downwards. The the more you become like these men, the better disciple you actually become. Who cares about your competency? Who cares about what you can do? Who cares about your skill sets and your past acts of righteousness and your church attendance and your tithe level? Who cares about that? All those things are great. They're good. But they're not the neediness that's being described here. In recent days, I've spoken to many who are suffering under various addictions, everything from pornography to substance abuse. It's always interesting when I talk to someone who sees themselves as an addict or someone who has a problem, how they describe what they need. In the first few minutes of sitting with someone who has an addiction, whether, whether it is pornography or maybe it's alcohol or maybe it's some kind of drug or painkiller or whatever it is, maybe it's even just addiction to people's approval, Right? And they sit down and it kind, of, it kind of comes to them. Yes, I've got a problem. What they say next tells you whether or not they're actually ready to come out of that problem. Here's some things that I hear in the first five minutes of meeting with addicts. I just need to get it together. I just need to get to AA. All I've got to do is change the way I think. I just need for COVID to go away. My friends, in all of that kind of neediness, they don't realize their real need 
They don't need to just get it together. They don't need just AA. Those things are great. But from my experience, when people think that they just need to do a certain number of things or they need to meet certain check marks or they need to do all these different things, they're not ready to come out of the addiction yet. Because to them, it's still coming to Jesus going, what must I do so that I can see? It's the people that fall on the floor. The people who, when it finally dawns on them, the tears well up in their eyes and they realize, I'm broken. I love hearing people in their brokenness saying, I don't know if I'll ever get out of this. I love hearing exasperated addicts who just weep and say, I don't know what else I can do. Those people are ready for Jesus. Some of you have never been there. And you have missed out on the sweet bread of the kingdom. You've missed out on the wine of what it's like to be so thirsty that you need that wine from Jesus to be refreshed. My friends, that is life. The more you grow up as a disciple, you don't grow more competent. Your skill set doesn't grow. If it does, it's all tangential. I can't even speak it. It's all tertiary. It's the life of a preacher. Just find a better word. You don't grow up. You grow down. That's the life of a disciple. To grow in desperate need. Maturity in the faith is a mature desperation. That's what it is. So not only did they see, I've I've lingered long on that because I think that's actually our biggest problem, especially in Western churches. We don't need much, do we? Most of us don't have never to, to say that we need something. In fact, we, you know, like I said, we need a new haircut, we need a new car, we need a new iPhone. But but we don't really grasp what it means to need something. Just imagine someone like holding you underwater, and then you realize the need. You need to get above water so you can survive, right? I was in the mountains of Colorado and um, at that time, it was, it was pretty predictable. You know, in the, in the first five hours of the morning, there's really good hiking. But then you get up to the top, and right about one o'clock, you hear the thunder start to roll in. And they tell you, okay, when, when one o'clock hits, you need to get off the top of the mountain. Uh, yeah, I like thunderstorms, right? I like rain. What's the worst that can happen? I sleep to thunder ambience at night, you know, just so I can sleep a little more deeply. So I'm like, ah, whatever. So I went on a 14-miler, and I'm seven miles up the mountain. It's 1.30 in the afternoon, and I'm sitting there enjoying my little, you know, I, I walk around with a thermos of coffee. You're not supposed to hike that long with coffee, but I do anyway. I'm sitting there reading a good book on the top of the, the trail, and boom! Okay, <laughs> now I understand my need. <laughs> you see the lightning flash hit, and you see the little dust that's still sitting on the other side of the peak? Okay, now I need to get down off the mountain. My friends, sometimes we don't realize our need till we actually need it. 
that make sense? You've got to bask in your needs. So sometimes it takes, it, it's not self-flagellation where you're trying to whip yourself into understanding your neediness. But it's just sometimes we have to be reminded that seeing our need is the first step of coming into the kingdom. We spend our whole lives acting like we need nothing. We don't like people thinking that we need anything. Our whole lives are built on creating these facades of independence and self-sufficiency. We work through our checkbox of what it means to be a grown-up. And Jesus comes, he's like, nope, you got to throw away the checkbox before you're ready for me. They see their neediness, and then they see their Savior. They see Jesus clearly. So as low as they see themselves, they see themselves as who they are, blind beggars who are in desperate need of mercy. But they see Jesus as the one who can give them mercy. He's not just a remedy. He's the remedy. He's not just a means by which they might receive their sight. He is the means. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. In their eyes, he is Lord. Now, in Matthew's gospel, anytime someone calls Jesus Lord, it's the equivalent of calling God Yahweh in the Old Testament. That's the full intention of the divine name there. They call him Lord. This is not just another man. This is a man who has come and is set on the same level with the same power and the identity of Yahweh. Now, these blind men from Jericho living in this cursed desert place somehow know what Psalm 146.8 says, that it is the Lord who opens blind eyes. They hear Jesus is coming, and that's the Lord, and the Lord opens blind eyes. We're going to call out for him. And not only do they see Jesus as the divine Lord, they see him as the son of David, which goes all the way back to 2 Samuel 7, who is, where, where David is promised by God, I will raise up your offspring, your son, after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and then listen to this, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, son of David refers to David's many descendants, but here's how they knew it wasn't the son of David, the singular son of David, because they all died. Solomon died, right? Hezekiah died, and yet Jesus comes and he reigns forever. So somehow these blind men see what the Pharisees have missed. The Pharisees live and eat the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures in the, in the temple. I mean, they know it um, like the back, of, literally, like the back of their hands. They know the Old Testament prophecies. They've completely missed it. Jesus is divine Lord. Jesus is Davidic king. In short, this is the only one who can give them what they need. As low as their neediness was, their hope and faith and trust in the Davidic king was high. What then? Well, I think crying out was the only appropriate response. If you saw yourself in such a need and you saw Jesus and all of his sufficiency, wouldn't the most accurate thing be to cry out for his mercy? I mean, that, that seems to me to be that we, we Western Christians are also very quiet people. 
Okay. We're very quiet people. Um, When we did baptisms in China, it was so amazing. When somebody got saved, when somebody wanted to put their faith in the Lord, and they went through baptism, you don't understand. I know I talk about China a lot. It's a massive part of my history because I learned much there. It really changed my worldview. So if I refer to it a lot, it's by necessity. Because I don't think I really understood my own need until I went to China. But I remember baptizing people in the river. Extremely dangerous, illegal. (laughs) Could have been caught. These people would have been arrested. I'd have been fined and kicked out after that. I just remember dunking my first person into the river. And it was cold, guys. I mean, it was freezing cold. And we dunked him in the river. He came out. (gasps) He needed it. He cried out. He goes, yeah, just like that. I mean, it was just an amazing sight. It gave me chills. It might have been the cold water, but it was also the fact that this man had no other choice. He'd been dunked in this extremely freezing cold water. It was all worth it because he was telling China, I have one king, and he has given me life and sight, and I walk now, so ah, back at you. We just don't celebrate, do we? We don't cry out the way we should. These blind men cry out, and it's not weird. It shouldn't be weird. It's weird to the crowd. But these blind men are like, uh. And when we say cry out, I mean, according to the Greek, this is not just, hey, hey, Jesus, hey. It's not that. And this is desperate screaming. Blind men trying to stand up. People getting knocked over as they're, I mean, this is desperation. I mean, this is chaos to get to Jesus. But as it is, no crowd telling them to shut up is going to be able to stop such people. My friends, we live in such a world that we're about to find out just how much you need Jesus. Because when the rest of the world tells you to sit down and shut up, when the rest of the world tells you to leave them alone, Let him pass on by. We'll find out how many blind beggars are willing to knock over people to get to Jesus. That's how much we need him. So here's the question. Who are you following? Who are you imitating? Of all the important people you might be tempted to mimic, it's not actors, actresses, presidents, politicians, celebrity pastors, or savvy millionaires that deserve your emulation. You want to enter the kingdom? Follow the beggars. Follow the beggars. Now, having looked closely at the blind men, we're wrapping up very rapidly here. Let's consider now the vast difference between the way the crowd responds to the beggars and the way that Jesus responds to the beggars. So that whole point on blind beggars was to you as an individual. Okay? This point belongs to us as a church. The people in the crowd heard the beggars and they began rebuking them. Now, I I don't think everybody in the crowd was yelling at them to shut up and sit down. But there were people, here's the point. There was no one in the crowd trying to bring them to Jesus. Do you realize that? There were people who were telling them to sit down and shut up. And then there were people that just were standing there. But no one is saying, here, let me take you by the hand and take you to him. 
They're all just kind of one blob, one mob of crowd telling these people either by conscientious passivity or by direct aggression to leave Jesus alone. Sound familiar? There were probably people in the crowd who wouldn't have minded the blind men to find Jesus. It's interesting to think about maybe what they were thinking. Perhaps they were thinking, these people have been judged by God. Why should they bother the Savior? The Messiah is not for those who get condemned. So maybe people were were thinking like that, like some kind of self-righteous legalism that these people are blind. Blindness equals judgment from God. Judged people don't deserve to see the Messiah. Or maybe it was more practical. Don't you know he's the king? He's got too much to do for you, to, to, to bother about you. He's the king. He's got to go kick out the Romans. Don't you know he's heading to Jerusalem where Israel's finally going to become great again and be put back on its spot? Leave him alone. He's got more important work to do. And they stand there and they block these people, these needy, desperate, blind people from reaching the king. Friends, how often in our churches have we been the crowd? The crowd. I think some of us have been in church for so long that we failed to remember what it was like to walk into it for the very first time. We've been going to church for so long that we walk in the door and we immediately gravitate to certain people. Certain people come in the door and what do we do? Hey, who is that? When was the last time they took a shower? How many times do we have these little, uh, Spurgeon used to call them ninnies. <laughs> and the reason he called them ninnies, they set up their, their small groups in the hallways, and nee, 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 about the people that were coming in. Ninnies. My friend, that's what the crowd is doing. Who are these blind men to try to get to Jesus? These beggars. My friends, can I just, can I offer you something? The crowd followed Jesus, but they didn't follow Jesus' heart. You might have followed Jesus and come to church, but unless your heart contains a passion for blind beggars to see, prostitutes to find grace, former abortion doctors to repent and see the goodness of God, diseased leopards to be made well, STD-ridden teenagers to find hope, traitorous tax collectors to be given forgiveness, homosexuals to have their thirst quenched, For the wounded to receive mercy, for the abused to receive healing, and for the mourning to be restored to joy, and for the weary to have rest. Can I just offer to you, you're not following Jesus' heart. That's what Jesus wants. It's for broken people to be made well. His heart moves toward the broken. He stops. This is probably the most glorious part of this text. He's in this kingly procession. He's in the midst of the throng. His mind is on what's about to happen in Jerusalem. He's, he's obligated to go. He knows that this is God's plan. He is taken up by this thought of about to die. And all these people swooping in for time, introducing themselves to him. And what does he do? It says it in the text. Jesus stopped. 
If you go to Washington, D.C. and the president drives by, you stop. He doesn't stop. You go to Russia and Putin walks by, you stop. He doesn't stop. And you hope he doesn't stop. You go to China and a military procession with a big dignitary at the back drives by, you stop. They don't stop. But Jesus, the king, stops. Lots, I can just imagine, it's a noisy event. People cry out, Jesus, Jesus, rich people coming. Jesus, you need to know me. Powerful people, Jesus, when you get your kingdom, remember me. James and John's mother, hey, Jesus, just giving you that request one more time. And yet it's, Lord, have mercy on a son of David that stops him in his tracks. I like to think of him just walking then. He hears it and his heart just moves. That's who Jesus is. Jesus' heart stops for sinners, for broken people. He stops for beggars. My friends, you might be someone here thinking that your sinful past is too dark, too shameful, your heart too shattered, your reputation broken, that surely no one would think of you as a candidate for Jesus' mercy. And yet, listen to the message in this text. Jesus' heart is moved for blind, dirty, homeless beggars like you. You might have slept with people you shouldn't have slept with in your past. Can we just get real here for a minute? You may not be living the way that you should be living. You may be be addicted to all kinds of things. You may have skeletons in your closet that are starting to reek from from being uh, so, you know, decayed. Surely Jesus doesn't have time for you. Well, he stops for the tax collecting trader Zacchaeus who stole from his own people. He stopped for the Canaanite mother who wept and cried out for him. He stops for blind beggars. And when you cry out to him in faith, it doesn't matter how dirty and broken you are. He stops for you. My friends, there's just sometimes that the Bible leads our hearts to weep at gratitude. We are needy, broken people, and Jesus stopped his kingly procession. In the Chronicles of Narnia, (laughs) there's some of you that's so sick of Chronicles of Narnia, but... Gosh, I'm not stopping. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a battle going on. Aslan's got stuff to do. He's, he's coming to restore Narnia. He's coming to set up Caspian on his rightful throne. And Aslan walks by, and there's a sick old lady dying in her house. She hears the noise on the outside, and she wonders what's going on. And she goes, I wish I could go out to see him. Next thing you know, this big old lion squeezes through her door. And he makes her well, and then he gives her a ride so that she can see all the joy and she's healed. That's the kind of savior that we have. He's got big work to do, but he loves being sidetracked by sinners. It's not so much a sidetrack as it is the work that he's come to do. 
My friends, we got big important stuff to do, don't we? Can I just offer to you that the big important work that we have to do is to see blind people in the desert become well? But we got budgets to organize. We've got facilities to manage. There's new paint that's got to go on the wall down here. We've got schedules to take care of. There's a new scuff on the floor. There's coffee stains, coffee stains in the carpet. It wasn't me. The first one was Brandon. I'll show you where it was. <laughs> We've got advertisements to make, booklets to make. We've got the bookstore to keep running. We've all got to organize our desk. We've got new hires to make. There's a lot going on, isn't there? And yet the work is to see blind beggars come to Jesus. And if we're not doing that work, we're not being the church of God. We're not being a church after Christ's own heart. So my friends, this is me just offering to you, not guilting to you, but if you want to follow Christ's heart, you don't just follow him to church. You follow him to those broken people out there. The people on the news that you watch with disgust. The people that you secretly wish you don't, you hope that you never meet. The people that you think, if you think a little too long on what they might be doing, that might make you sick. Jesus calls you to broken people and broken places because that's where he went first. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem and the next week we're going to see how he heads into Jerusalem so he can die as the king and as the Passover lamb. The cross is his ascension to the throne. That is where he is crowned, the suffering servant king. And he did that for you. My friends, if you understand God's grace rightly, you'll understand yourself as a blind beggar in need of Jesus. And then when you have sight, you'll help other blind beggars find Jesus. Church, do something. Follow Jesus. Help broken people. Let's pray. Father God, may I ask for a revival in our hearts. God, many people have prayed for revival, and uh, Lord, so much so that revival now becomes some token term, term that we use. But God, I do pray that you will restore us to your heart and to the heart of your son. May we not be so taken up with our business that we forget our mission. May we follow Jesus as he loves blind beggars and gives them hope and healing. And may we, even more importantly, see ourselves as the blind beggars who have received mercy from him. Help our hearts, Father. Let's put down our pharisaical criticism and judgment and gossiping and backbiting and all the things that we do and crinkling our nose at people. May we see just how dangerous that is because it proves that we don't really know you. Lord, let us know your heart and live your heart. Thank you for giving grace to us as broken people. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.